I want to welcome you back again to our Wednesday night Bible study. We're going through the series, When Sinners Say I Do. It's a marriage book, but we're not going from the aspect of marriage because um, as I went through the book, it just really hit me on a very comprehensive book on the core problem that we're dealing with in life is our sin nature and our depravity and the fact that we don't address it or we ignore it, and this is why we continue to struggle. And so I hope you're we're blessed from last week, and we talked about those three things that we need to do and recognize, and that as we continue on. And uh, remember our other services that we have. We have our Sunday morning service at 1020. This is the only service where we're meeting together. We're meeting in the gym. You just come a little bit before. And then we have our Sunday school, which is online with Dan Swadley at 930. All these uh, things uh, are on our website at basschapel.church where we have a YouTube channel and a podcast and also on Facebook Live. And so if you missed anything or you can't come or you're not coming at this time, they're all available there. Also, we have three different ways to give. You can give online safely or we have a P.O. box. Or also, if you come to the service, we have a safe place for you to drop uh, your offering off. Um, We hope that you're blessed by this. And again, if you have any needs, please contact us through email or calling and, and we'll make sure we'll try to help you. Our mission is open on Wednesdays. Uh, people aren't coming in, but you can pull up, and uh, we'll try to help you. And that's from uh, 9 to noon on Wednesdays. Um, let's open in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this day, the opportunity to be here. Pray for the various needs in, in this time as we try to find our way through. We know that you said that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, dear Lord, I just pray that you help us to hold on to you and to not look at the circumstances. I pray you bless everyone out there, and I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we're on um, chapter 2. Um, I, again, I'm abbreviating this because it's designed for marriage, but it just really struck me on how talking clearly about the sin that we struggle with. Uh, the title of the chapter is Waking Up with the Worst of Sinners, but Waking Up with Yourself, let's put it this way, the news about who we really are. And one of the questions he asks is, why are, why are we not really loving? And he say, well, I am loving, Pastor. Um, but come on, let's, when we get by ourselves, and if people could read our thoughts, there's a lot of times where we're not being loving. Now, I know I share a lot about myself, because the reason I share about myself is I want, if, if, if I don't get real with myself, you're not going to get real with yourself. And so there's a lot of times where we can learn to surface, look like we love. Like this, uh, we're going through the parables on Sunday mornings, and I'm going to be talking about the parables of wheat and weed. And the wheat and the weeds, the problem was is they looked alike. And one was true and one was not. And so many times, going back to asking the question, why, why aren't I more loving? And so many times we just get like Paul in Romans chapter 7 and, and we, you know, why do I think this way? Or why do I, uh, am, am so negative or, or don't want people around or all this kind of stuff. Guys, it's our sin nature. And if I love, why does it seem so easy to treat others the way I don't want to? And there's a lot of ways we do that. We, he, he said, I treated someone I love as if I had no love at all. And you say, well, that's not me, Pastor. But, yeah, you may be able to fake it. But if you get in the reality, on our own, it's hard to love. 
And Paul's confession and ours, that we're going to get into that here in a moment, it's the under it's the underside of life, the reality of living with with everyone from day in and day out in a fallen world. And you got you got you got the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. That's easy, right? But the second commandment is just as important as this, love your neighbor as yourself and the reality of living in this this day in and day out in a fallen world. But what does it reveal? What does it indicate when I see my rottenness? So we realize, yeah, man, there's a lot of me that, you know, I can act right, but I really don't have the right motives on that, or I'm not loving the way I, way I need to. That doesn't excuse the fact that I, I know what's right, yet often I choose to do something else instead. This is where we're at today. Well, at least I confessed it. I'm honest about it. I'm better than anybody else, but that doesn't make it right. If sin is a persistent problem for us, we're in pretty good company. As bad as we can be, the Apostle Paul seems uh, to think that he's even worse. That's Paul. Okay? And so Paul writes to Timothy, and he says this in in 1 Timothy 1.15. The, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And that's not milk. That's the fact of He's the top. And this is Paul. He's saying that. Paul leads off by calling calling this, saying that it's a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. It's like he's not just saying that to kind of associate. He's saying this is the real deal. That's the ancient, uh, he's saying that's the ancient equivalent of putting a little explanation mark on the email or the text that's in caps. He's saying, this is the real deal. I'm the chief of sinners. This is a high priority. He's saying, he, 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 he's saying, his saying here has two parts. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a positive thing. Then it catapults the, us to the heart of the glorious gospel and prepares us for the part two, two of this statement that I am the foremost. So you got the good news we talked about last week and the bad news. And you have to have the bad news before you get the good news. And so he says, you know, Christ came to save the top sinner. And he says, I'm the top sinner. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? How can the apostle to the Gentiles, the original theologian of the Christian faith, honestly say this? Where do we have to go to go with this? There are, these are important questions. And we, we dare not dismiss Paul's uh, statement as exaggerating. This is God's word here. It's a profound point that he's making. First, it's clear that Paul's not trying to objectively compare himself to every other human being. This is our problem. We try to look at everybody else because most of them, had, he, he hadn't met us. Okay, This tells us that his focus is not primarily outward, it's inward. Again, it's interesting to me. I didn't plan this, but we're looking at three parables this week. And, and one of them is the parable of the yeast. And the parable of the yeast is all talking about that the kingdom starts inward and goes out. So Paul's not talking and looking to everybody else. He's looking to himself. How amazing is that? And we look at ourselves first. He's not suggesting his moral character is bankrupt. Or his spiritual maturity is zero. This is why we're doing this study. It's because we get saved and we ignore that we're going to struggle with sin and then we think we're okay. 
And Proverbs and Jeremiah 17, 9, which I'm going to be learning that verse. I'm just kind of skating on it. But the gist of it is this. The heart is evil, desperately wicked. Sin nature. You're saved. You're secure. But you're struggling with your sin. And if you do not stay alert and stay awake in that, then you will fall. And 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, the one who thinks he stands, take heed lest he falls. Um, so, he's simply talking about what's going on in his heart. And this is what I want to get real about. When I was reading this book, and I'm not going to, you know, I don't put my faith in books. This is why you've got to be studying God's Word first more than you're reading any book or watching any TV show or whatever you're doing. So then you can discern when somebody puts these thoughts together in a good way, hey, that's biblical. And I felt about this book that it's finally saying what I've been trying to say, but I can't say it the way I need to, is we are going to struggle with sin, and we need to be aware of that, and we need to deal with that. He's simply saying what is going on in the human heart. He's saying, in effect, look, I know my sin, and what I've seen in my own heart is darker and more awful and it's more proud, selfish, and self-exalting, and it's more consistently and regularly in rebellion against God than anything I have ever glimpsed at in the heart of anyone else. Can you really know somebody else's heart better than yourself? A, a, a good example I'd like to say is, aren't you glad people can't read minds? I'm trying to walk with God. I want to go with God. I don't want you to read my mind. I don't want to read your mind. There's a... I'll get off on a tangent here. Uh, there's a super villain in the, in the DC universe. Yes, I'm a geek, so just live with me for a minute. Okay? His name's Brainwave, and he obviously can read everybody's thoughts. And so he's become evil because he realizes that everybody's thoughts are evil, and there's nobody that has purity and goodness. Now, I'm not saying we're totally evil, but guys, I want you to understand we are born in sin. And we will we can we can be saved from that and have the Holy Spirit in us to deal with that and we will struggle with that, but we need to understand the only person that we can see as evil is ourselves truly. Paul was a student of his heart. That's what we're gonna be talking about. You know, I know I'm introspective. I know that there's times if I go too far I'll think too much. And I have to let things go. But you know what? You need to become a student of your heart. A lot of you with health issues or whatever, or, or, or not even health issues, that you're really healthy, you sit there and monitor your, your heart rate and how many miles you've done and all this kind of stuff and what you've intaked, but yet your heart you do not guard. And it's the most dangerous. Desperately wicked. Sick. He knew he was capable, given the right circumstances of the worst of sins and the vilest of motives. And Paul was a realist. And that, here's the pen, and here's the bubble, and I'm popping it. I'm a man and still in need of a Savior, and left alone, I will do the wrong thing. He wanted to see God and himself truly. No hiding behind a facade of pleasantness and religiosity for him. Wow, that's a $5 word. Religiosity. I'm surprised I even pronounced it halfway right. Now, let's look at the very next verse. 
Look at First Timothy one sixteen. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as his example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That is rich. With, this pa- with the passing of each day, two things grew larger in Paul. His sinfulness, which is what we just talked about, in the light of the holiness of God. You get next to God, and you see how holy He is, you see how sinful you are, and God's mercy in the face of the sin. Oh, the mercy. This is why I get back to the Chronicles of Narnia. I meant to start that during my COVID quarantine, but I, di- I didn't get to because I wanted to read them again. But Aslan... The line that represents Jesus, anytime the kids, the regular people get near him, they're just like they automatically go to their knees or in awe because they see how unworthy they are and how worthy he is. And that's how we are with God. But yet we see Aslan extending grace and forgiveness. And this is what Jesus does. Knowing both God and himself accurately was not at all discouraging or depressing. Rather, it deepened his gratitude for the vastness of God's mercy in redeeming him. This is an interesting dynamic, and I want you to hear me clearly. I'm not saying as your pastor gets older, he gets worse. No. But as I get older, I see my sinfulness more. And as I get older, as I look at Christmas and I look at Easter and I see the sacrifice, I the, the depth of grace grows in my life. The appreciation of it. And so, if what I'm saying to you right now causes you to, well, there's no hope, that's not what I'm saying. But again, you have to hear the bad before you get to the good news that, yes, we are sinners. Sinners, And we are destined to hell without God. And God is holy. And we are not. But He sent His Son, who was holy, to die and take our punishment on and raise from the dead to give us hope. And He extends undeserved grace and mercy to us. Hope. It should deepen that. That's why every year, seeing my sinfulness, not anymore, but the depth of the evilness of my heart without God, and then the deepness of His grace that draws me back. God's mercy is in redeeming Him and the patience of Christ and continue to love and identify with us in our daily struggle against sin. He knows we're going to struggle. And every day He's going to help us. And Paul's confession to Timothy above all presents us with a stunning example of moral honesty and theological maturity. And this is why we're doing this. You know, I'm sitting there reading this. I know these things, but it's it's maturing me more and affirming we have an issue here. Jesus is a solution, and he's aware of our struggle, and we need to get honest with it. Paul's acute, even painful awareness of of his own sinfulness caused him to magnify the glory of the Savior. When we see how simple we are, we see how holy He is. The next section, he said, the beautiful, the biblical reality of joyful wretches. Joyful wretches. There's the balance in that title. We see how, how simple we are, but yet we're joyful because of the forgiveness and grace of God. A great awareness of one's sinfulness often stands side by side with great joy and confidence of God. I go back to when I get to heaven, why are you here? It's Jesus, period. The same Paul who, who could call himself the foremost of sinners could exude two verses. Um, 
in First Timothy one seventeen, he says to the King of Kings, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There is nothing good in me apart from Christ. Glory to God. In this theme, he also resonates through Psalms 40. We see rejoicing in the Lord and lamentation over a sin are side by side. So in Psalms 40 here, we see the dynamics of these two things working together. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon the rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of you. Yet yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open air. Burnt offering and sin you have not required. Then I said, I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it was written to me. I delight to do your will, O Lord. Your law is with your heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as known, O Lord. I have not, I have not hidden your deliverance from my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness for this great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love, your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Oh, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those who turn back be brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Ah, ah. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love you Love your salvation. Say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me, and you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. You know, every day I try to do devotion, and part of the devotion of my prayer time is is reading through a psalm and then praying one of those. And if I was reading through this today like I am, I would look at the last two verses, verses 16 and 17 of, of uh, 40, really amplify what we're talking about, how we can be aware of our sin and God's grace and His glory at the same time. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, notice the reality, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help, my deliverer, not my delay. Oh my God. This is the problem in the American church and with evangelism, is we think everybody's okay at some point. We are not at all, period. You go on yourself, and you try to do it yourself, you're not going to get anywhere. It may be for a season, and you may, going back to the parable that we're going to be looking at, the weeds and the wheat, you're going to look good, you're going to look right, but it's poisonous, it's dangerous, and it's of the enemy. 
You've got to see where you're at. You've got to see what your need for God's grace and to Him be the glory. If there's anything good in you, it is from God. And so, we see here, this really shows us what's going on here. Is this some kind of bipolar spirituality at work? You know, I'm sinful, but I'm good at all this. By no means. It's the joy of salvation breaking through despite life in a fallen world and a heart still fighting against sin. See, that's the problem. You know, go back to this. Despite life in a fallen world and a heart still fighting against sin. The problem is a lot of you Christians have given up the fight. I can't do it. Or you think it's connected to your salvation. No, you're free to struggle. You don't struggle to be free. It's the reality as seen through this biblical truth that we see in Timothy here. This reality is very different from the, um, what we usually... Uh, this reality is very different from what we're usually up to our next in with the sleek, shiny, false reality of a fluent, comfort-driven society uh, obsessed with self-esteem. Instead, this reality sends us to the Savior who brings God's holiness and mercy together on the cross. The great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon was another man who saw this reality and, and this Christ-centered uh, glory. He said, Too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned, with the rope about his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil from which he has been forgiven him, and to live to honor the Redeemer by, by whose blood he has been cleansed. We do not see, see our sins seriously. We will not see true grace. Remember what Jesus said of the woman caught in adultery in Luke 7:47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Remember, I... He said here, if like Paul and David and Spurgeon, I recognize the enormity of my sin, seeing myself as the worst of sinners, then I understand I have been forgiven much and that when biblical, that's when biblical reality begins to make sense. If you do not see your sin as much, how are you going to see His forgiveness as much? Oh, it's just a box I checked. It's just something I did, a church that I joined. Going back to, I didn't mean to do this, but you go back to the parable of the wheat and weeds we're going to be talking about, and you're talking about the true church and the false church. And the false church would say, your sin's not that bad. If so, why are there crosses in these churches? Quotes. We need to understand the reality of our sin, the seriousness of our sin, and the payment of our sin. I start to see, he says, God as truly as he is, his vastness becomes bigger his vastness becomes bigger than my problems. We need a big God for this big situation. And His goodness comes to me even though I'm not good. And His wisdom and power are visible in the perfect ways He works to transform me from the inside out. Wow! I mean, I know you don't know that. I've been studying, but the other parable of the yeast is talking about from the inside out. But we're so concerned about how we look. I was killing time at the uh, mall in Tulsa when I was going on this retreat because it wasn't time to go. And so I'm just walking around, and one of those sales ladies in the middle is like, Hey, can I try this on? And it's like, You know, I'm killing time. The girl was kind of desperate. 
so I sat down, and she's talking about the wrinkles on my forehead. Now, that's all that you're looking at. Now. I just know that's all that you're looking at. And you're looking under my eyes, aren't you? And she goes, let me try this stuff on you. I'm just killing time, you know. And and so she puts this stuff on under one of my eyes. And I felt like I was stretching hides, coon hides. Because, like, my face just felt like it went over this. And I was tired anyway. My eyes were droopy. And so now at least that left eye was wide awake. And so I thought she was going to do a little cell thing where I'm going to let you go around the mall with one part of your face where the wrinkles are gone and your eyes wide open. And the other one it looks like Mr. Scrunchy. But she didn't do that. Okay? So anyway, she did the other eye. And, it, you know, it really did you know, take the wrinkles away. And she kept going, you're not concerned about your wrinkles and how you look? And I go, no. You wouldn't use this? I go, no. You're not concerned about your Now you're really looking at it, aren't you? You're not concerned about your wrinkles? No. I don't wake up in the morning saying, oh, I hope I don't look less or more wrinkly. Okay? It's just happening. Okay? But this is how we are with our sin. We would rather put the temporary fix to look okay and not what the problem is on the inside and deal with that. So, to tr- we would rather, rather be conformed and look like a Christian than be transformed and be a Christian. So this sin, my sin and yours, is supremely ugly. It's vile. It's wicked. But at the same time, it's the backdrop to a larger drama. We may we may uh, be works in progress who are painfully prone to sin. I like that. Works in progress, painfully prone to sin. Yet, we can be joyful works thanks to God. And we have been redeemed uh, by the grace through the death and resurrection of our Christ. Our Savior has come to rescue us from the penalty of sin and grant us an abundant life in His Spirit. You've got to see the depth of your sin, but you've got to see the abundance of the Savior. The bitter and the good. The bitter and the sweet. Until sin is bitter, the rest of life will not be sweet. And it will be fake. It will be temporary. Guess what? Wrinkles came back. I would have to pay whatever that was, you know, to put that on every day and stretch my skin. Maybe you should, Pastor. Well, that's between you and the front, me and you in the fence, okay? All right, that's not going to happen. But notice it was gone. But when we deal through Christ, it's not. The bitter, that we are sinful, the sweet, that God is good and saves us and empowers us and gives us glory to to do this. Christians for a long time adopted certain assumptions about how they should behave and they can feel they were they and they each feel they have certain needs that they think everybody else should meet. Whether it's a marriage, whether it's in the job, whether it's a siblings, whatever. You need to do this for me. You owe this to me. The only thing we are owed owed is death, hell and the grave. That's what we deserve. And although we may attend church and live conscientious Christian lives, and we can experience serious conflict, what we don't see is that our fights are grounded in a wrong reality. Our struggles and our conflicts are grounded in a wrong reality. Um, So meaningful solutions always seem to escape us. It's because our expectations are wrong. You need to act like this. You need to do this for me instead of eternally dealing with 
our struggle with sin. We always want to deal with somebody else. The problems emerge when several times a week we rehearse other people's failures and put our demands out there for people to change and to repent and kind of hurtful remarks we toss back and forth and it's always somebody else's fault and it's getting worse every day. I can't control anybody. I can only control what I do. But yet, we don't want to look at ourselves. We don't want to look at our struggle. But our, but our greatest need is uh, but our greatest need is in our theology. We talked about that we are our theologians and what we say and what we do. And then we need to be founded on the Word and the Gospel needs to be our core. We need to recognize that some of the expectations that we hold for other people and the underlying perspectives from which these expectations emerge are unbiblical. I'd had to realize that. Come on, let's, it, the world would be great if everybody acted the way I wanted them to. At least my world would be great. But that's unbiblical. It doesn't matter the way I think. All that matters is what God thinks. Certainly the accusations, harsh words, and selfishly demanding attitudes are riddled with sin. And the root of the problem is revealed in the fact that Paul says, going back to 1 Timothy 1.15, this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Notice the first part he says, is this not a trustworthy say, uh, saying? In short, Lack of understanding of how the gospel really works, uh, is they are far from alone. John MacArthur laminates the widespread loss of biblical reality among believers. Listen to this statement. Christians are rapidly losing sight of sin as the root of all human woes. And many Christians are explicitly denying that their own sin can be the cause of their personal anguish. Ooh, deep words, mister. More and more are attempting to explain the human dilemma in wholly unbiblical terms, temperate, addiction, uh, dysfunctional families, the child within, codependency, the host of other irresponsible escape mechanisms promoted by secular psychology. The potential impact of such a drift is frightening. Remove the reality of sin and you take away the possibility of repentance. Abolish the doctrine of human depravity and you, and you void the divine plan of salvation. Erase the notion of personal guilt and you eliminate the need for a Savior. Yes, 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 and I'm going to go back and read that last part there. Remove the reality of sin and take away the possibility of repentance. In other words, it's not sin and I don't have to do anything about it. Abolish the doctrine of human depravity. Man's not totally bad and void the divine plan of salvation. Therefore, we don't need a solution. We erase the notion of personal guilt and you eliminate the need for a Savior. You'll never need to feel bad. We're there. Man's always struggled with that, but we're there, and Christians are being persecuted, not because they do stupid things, but because they dare to live and share God's truth, the gospel. And that is a really, really scary place to be. But it's the reality. The ongoing need for the Savior is exactly what professing Christians must hang on to. The cross makes a stunning statement about 
who we are. We are sinners and our only hope is grace. That's the statement we need to look at this week. We are sinners and our only hope is grace. Without clear awareness of sin, we will evaluate our conflicts outside of the biblical story and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, thus eliminating any basis of truth, understanding, true recognition, and true change. Without the gospel of our crucified and risen Savior, our lives slide towards the superficial, and we begin to make limp justifications for our sinful behavior and for our conflicts, and at best, an uneasy partial negotiation of settlements. In other words, you know, we just kind of uh, uh, deal with it, and we deal with it in a very unbiblical way. This is why I believe in biblical counseling. I am for psychologists. I'm for uh, all that stuff. I don't have any issue with medicine when it's needed. I think these are things of science, but I do believe that we, when we ignore the, our sinfulness, we are, we, are, we are medicating and we are excusing things that we need to deal with. And we've got to be very careful about that. Again, I'm going to reiterate, I think all those things have a place. I am not against any of that. But I am strongly for biblical counseling. Because when we ignore depravity in our sin nature, then we try to push it all on something else or go a different direction that can be unbiblical. But once uh, you find this, First Timothy uh, 1, 15 and 16 is trustworthy, once you embrace it, and accept it once I know the need, that I we are the worst of sinners then is no longer my biggest problem uh, then whoever or whatever is going on is no longer the biggest problem the biggest problem is me and when I find myself walking in the shoes of the worst of sinners I will make every effort to grant everybody else the same lavish grace that God has granted me you know I used to look at ministers that were older than me and think that they were selling out and I know some younger ministers might think sometimes I'm not. No, no, I'm a soft stone wall. I'm going to hold to God's word, and you can bounce off me. But you know, I don't believe there's any gray areas, but there's grace areas. And the older I get, the more I understand my sinfulness, the more it gives me grace. Again, we're going to speak the truth, and we're going to tell people their situation. But grace, grace. God's grace. Well, the worst thing about sin, the worst of sinners, man takes a chill. Uh, the worst of sinners, man take a chill pill and unplug the mortal, the moral meter. What's the big deal? That's what you may be saying. You're just really riding this. The big deal is this: is that my sin is not first against me or others. All sin is first against God, and that changes everything. Oh, I just hurt that person, but you sinned against God. Now you, now you recall the Bible has a specific way of describing human beings as, as sinners. So you see this in Psalms 51.5 and Romans 3.23 and Romans 5.12. You can look those up. And to accept the designation of sinner is to acknowledge, that, to acknowledge who I am in relationship with God. It also says who I am not. I am not a neutral actor. I, by my very nature, which is sinful, sin nature, I am a fence to God's very nature, which is holy. I am an offense to God by my very nature, born into sin. So the term sinner, when used in Scripture, clearly implies that there is one at least who, who is sinned against. You see what I'm saying? I didn't hurt them, but we're sinners. So that one that we sin against is God. When I speak a critical, unkind word to anyone or anything, uh, that is sin. But also that is sin against God. Obviously, is much stronger degree. When I need to, what I need to see, however, is that sin 
is most strongly and therefore profoundly against God. And that is something that has in com- that we have in common with every other sin that's ever been committed. Every sin, however big, however small, its impact on other people violates the purity and perfection of a holy God. Sin is always aimed first and foremost at God. You can see that in Deuteronomy 19.16, 1 Samuel 15.24, Psalms 51.4. And so, Jerry Bridges says it this way, Sin is wrong not because of what it does to me or my spouse or child or neighbor, but because it is an act of rebellion against an infinitely holy and majestic God. Busted. I saw that I, we need to see that we've been completely unconcerned with the fact that my sin has been first against God and that I stood guilty before His infinite holiness. And we regard our sins as error at worst or little sins that require little consideration in my heart. The real goal is simply kind of a damage control, not an honest accounting before the Heavenly Father. But by God's grace, we can begin to uh, see, as J.L. Packer said, there can be no small sins against a great God. How many sins does it take to send you to hell? What's the level? One, according to James. As biblical reality started to sink in, I hope you begin to experience true sorrow for your little sins. I hope you begin to notice very real but less obvious sins that you commit regularly in your life. Again, you're as saved as you're ever going to be, but it's time to be sanctified. It's time to be holy. It's time to be salt and light in a world that desperately needs it. I mean, bridges that I quoted a little bit ago, uh, and I don't think we went through it um, as a church, but I went through it in a science school class, acceptable sins. There are so many sins that we accept in the American church that we shouldn't, that we get comfortable with, and they're all sin, and they're all at God's level. I started to learn how to battle. You need to start to learn how to battle these things and to confess these things and have conversations about them with God and with others. And you have to come to see God and yourself a little more clearly. And so the worst of sinners, best of worlds. So we begin by concluding here. When I recognize myself as the worst of sinners, that stuff is just more obvious to me every day and every week. But then again, you're the worst of uh, sinners. At least it's not a lonely place. Because we're all sinners. Some questions I have. Do you fear that you'll be too hard on yourself? If so, just remember that Paul said he was the worst of sinners. But remember also who we are in Christ despite our sin. I'm a child of God. I'm forgiven. I'm free to struggle. I don't struggle to be free. We need to remember that God's at work in you, conforming us into a genuine, but conforming you into genuine from the inside out example of Christ. A sober assessment of our sinful condition doesn't hinder the work it celebrates us. And this is the problem. Psalms 139, 23, and 24 is your application tonight. That you learn that verse or whatever, and then use that in your prayer time. Search me, oh God, know me, test my thoughts, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me along the road everlasting. That's a hard thing to ask, but we got to start getting real. And stop being surface, because we're not going to do good for anyone. The question that used to boggle us is, if I love, why do... 
I, it's so easy for me to treat others as if I don't. We are all the worst of sinners, so anything we do that isn't sin is simply the grace of God at work. That's why when somebody thanks me for something, or if I do the sermon or whatever, or I've helped somebody, i got to smell it like a rose and lift it up to God, because if there's anything good in me, it's from God. Next week we're going to discuss how to employ grace to fight this battle on the cross. And what we... But we shouldn't end this time without appreciating the hidden gift that comes as we see ourselves as the worst sinners. It's humility. A pride-crushing, vision-clearing humility. That there are two things that were suited to humble the soul of man. John Owen wrote, A due consideration of God and then of ourselves, of God in His greatness, glory, holiness, power, majesty, and authority, of ourselves as our mean, object, and sinful condition. We need to understand the road to humility is open to all. Humble yourself, James says, in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Who are willing to give due consideration to who they truly are and in and of themselves before a God, before a holy God, I want to walk the road and know, and know, I know we all do too. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. In the next few weeks, we're, we're, uh, we'll look at comforted and con, uh, confronted and unconfronted truths. And there's not quite, there's nothing quite like being a forgiven sinner, grateful to a living God for life, breath, and salvation, and every other provision. It's, it's, it's really the only perspective from which you can begin to see God yourself and in true reality. So how are you seeing yourself tonight? The worst of sinners, or you're okay? Because if you see yourself as okay, you're wrong. How are you looking at your life every day? Or are you allowing Satan to keep his thumb on you and, and just to see your sinfulness and not see the grace of God that you're a child and you're empowered and, and filled by the Holy Spirit to deal with your sin? Wherever you're at in these areas, surrender it to God. Don't take for an instant that you're okay and that you're ever okay without God. If you need Jesus right now, ask Him in your heart to save you. Come in and forgive you and be your Savior. And for the rest of you, stop discounting sin. Know that there is nothing good in you. And cling to the grace and humility of God. Lord, I thank you for everyone here. I thank you for this church. And I pray you guide us to deal with the reality of our situation and in the power of your grace and your Holy Spirit. In your name, Jesus. Amen.